Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. Welcome to Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold. I hope you're having a good day. Thanks for joining me today. David Wheaton's going to be uh, coming on the program in just a minute. But I first have to tell you out of Deuteronomy chapter 31, verse 6, it says, Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or terrified because of them. For the Lord your God goes with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. Just a great verse to memorize, just to be reminded to be strong and courageous. And do not be afraid or terrified. And I also love Psalm 3. In verse 3 it says, But you are a shield around me, O Lord. You bestow glory on me and lift up my head. You bestow glory on me and you lift up my head. That's a beautiful image. I love that. Psalm 3, 3. David Wheaton is a regular guest on the show, and you can always head over to thechristianworldview.org to learn more about David. And always delighted to have him on. We've been in a series talking about Genesis now for, it's probably been four or five months, and I'm just loving it. And we're picking up where we left off last time, and David's joining me this uh, this afternoon. David, welcome. Good afternoon, Bill. Good to be with you today. As always, uh, we both uh, enjoyed Daryl Harrison as a guest. I think I had him on last Friday, and you, did you have him on? Are you having him on this Saturday? Yeah, I did. He was on our program this past Saturday, and we'll be on again with his, his co-host of their Just Thinking podcast, Virgil Walker. And really just per, uh, appreciate his perspective and all that's going on in our country with regards to race right now. And mm-hmm. and uh, he, he really brings a powerful and biblical perspective to the whole thing that is very different, obviously, than you're going to hear in, in the mainstream media and even amongst many evangelicals today. Yeah, he's solidly biblical and not to mention a really nice guy. He is. He yeah. is. He was our speaker last year at our speaker series event, and uh, we just enjoyed having him here and meeting his wife, Melissa, and just appreciate that man. Yeah, awesome. Well, we are loving our study in Genesis, and let's uh, let's get back to it. Um, let's just uh, always helpful to review. Uh, last time we, we uh, looked at Genesis 14 through 16, maybe a little brush up before we uh, move into 17 and 18. Yeah, in, in case someone's just listening for the first time today, so we've been going through Genesis and seeing how relevant uh, all these things that happened so many thousands of years ago are for us today. There's so many principles and promises that were started way back at the very beginning uh, that God established that are still uh, you know, super significant today. So w- last time we went over Genesis 14 through most of 16, and in Genesis 14 there is this incredible story how these kings— came into Canaan. And and back at that time, it was a a real tribal situation. You have kings of various cities, and they would—one would rise to power, then they subjugate other kings and make them pay financial tribute to them. And when they didn't, uh, they would come and attack them and try to enslave them and steal their money and so forth. So this was what happened when these kings—these four kings came into the area of Canaan where Abraham was living. And uh, they came in and they took over the air, the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah and that surrounding area, and they took Lot, Abraham's uh, nephew, as a captive, and they just completely took over the area. And then it shows in Genesis 14 how Abraham 
with only 318 of his own personal militia, goes and pursues these kings 150 miles away mm. and defeats them. It doesn't say this, but it's supernatural. You can't take 318 people of a private militia and go and attack four different kings and their armies against impossible odds and returns them, all the hostages that were taken, all the spoil. And uh, this is right after they had just taken over the, the entire region. And then when he comes back, there's this interesting situation that takes place where Abraham is, is, is comes and he bows down before this man named Melchizedek. And this man, King Melchizedek of Salem, which is now Jerusalem, uh, was was back in the land waiting for Abraham to came back, come back, and Abraham bowed down to him and paid him tithes. And you think, well, why is that significant? Well, the significance is, is because the Jewish people revered Abraham so much, and the, the tribe of Levi, the, the priestly tribe. And here you have Abraham and the descendants of Abraham and Aaron and Levi and so forth paying tithes to someone like King Melchizedek. And the point is that Melchizedek was a type of Christ, showing that Christ was even greater than their father Abraham and, and the tribe of Levi and the priests and the law and all that. There was a type of Christ right there back in Genesis in the Old Testament. And then the, then the last point I'll make about review last time was we don't want to miss the, the portion of Genesis 15 where uh, God reiterates his promise uh, to Abraham that there's going to be from him is going to come a great nation and, and many descendants and land and seed and blessing and all these things that God is going to do through through Abraham. And to prove it, God takes him outside. And in Genesis 15, there's this really important uh, passage. He says, God took him outside and said, now look toward the heavens and count the stars if you are able to count them. And God said to him, so shall your descendants be. And then verse six is the key verse. Then Abraham believed in the Lord and God reckoned it to him, to Abraham, as righteousness. Mm, and this is yeah. the whole foundation on which justification, how we are made right with God, how God declares us righteous, is not based on what we do, trusting in our works, trying to do religious deeds. God justified Abraham simply because of Abraham's belief in God. And it, that is all throughout the New Testament as well, that we see this. this is a key thing. This is the one principle that separates biblical Christianity from every other religion in the world. Every other religion and spiritual path is based on us or man earning favor with God by doing good works, some God or whatever the God is. Biblical Christianity is Abraham believed in the Lord and God reckoned it to him as righteousness. Salvation comes by God's grace alone through faith alone, in Christ alone. I love it. So they have this promise of all these children, yet um, they're, they're old. And <laughs> yeah. Sarah must be thinking, I've, it's now time for human initiative to get this uh, ball rolling, huh? That's right. And so it's just incredible if you think about it. The promise is made when they're already old. You know, I, th I think uh, Abraham was 76 or something like this when God made these initial promises to him. This is very old, and, and Sarah's wife was only 10 years, or his wife was only 10 years younger. Uh, so all of a sudden, after what we just talked about, 10 years go by, and still there's, there's no son, there's mm -hmm. no child. And so Sarah, Abram's wife, begins to doubt, and she comes up with a human scheme to accomplish what God had promised to them. And her, and her idea is, well, I don't have a, a son, I don't have a child here, and how am I going to have a great nation come from my husband Abraham if we don't have any children? Well, I have an idea. 
And here's the idea. I'll take my maid, Hagar, an Egyptian maid, Hagar, and I'll give her to my husband, Abraham, to be his wife, for him to bear a child, and then that child will be mine. Mm-hmm. So, you know, <laughs> you can just imagine where that's going to go. Well, yeah. it turns out that Hagar does, that that happens. She he she does give Hagar to Abraham to be his wife, and she becomes pregnant. And what Sarah doesn't expect is that Hagar, all of a sudden, once she's conceived, starts despising her uh, Sarah. And the relevance for this is just how many times in our own life do we read the promises in God's Word, uh, whether it's re- regarding how to raise children or to how to have our marriage or or how to trust the Lord and, and just His promises He gives us in His Word. And when we don't, when things aren't going the way we envision them, or at least according to the timing we envision them, we start easily coming up with our own schemes, our own alterations, our own human reasonings in our own mind. We have a tendency to doubt. We take matters into our own hands. But the bad thing is it usually ends up very, or you almost always ends up very badly when we do this. And this was just an early example. And the, the conflict that lasted from this bill, uh, Hagar did have Ishmael, and Ishmael was the father of a, a great multitude of people, as God, as God promised. He was the father of the Arabic people. Mm-hmm. And the conflict between Ishmael and then the eventual son of Abraham and Sarah Isaac would be a conflict that not only was back then, but would last literally to this day. Right. It's it's still (laughs) happening, isn't it? It very much. The the Scripture even says that. This is a conflict that still goes on to this day. I mean, you you, you try to explain how there is this conflict in the Middle East that seems insurmountable. Um, And this is certainly the starting point of that. Maybe you can't excuse it on this, but— you're going to see how our decisions, uh, that passage in Scripture talks about our sins can affect the third and fourth generations. God doesn't punish the third and fourth generations for our sin. We're always punished individually for our sins, but the consequences, the effects of our sin go on sometimes for generations. Mm-hmm. So, David, I know, I know it's a lot of people have trouble trusting God, of course, Um but they have even more trouble trusting God when, when they see that things aren't going the way that they had hoped or had envisioned. And this was going on way back then, wasn't it? Yeah, and, and for way many years. I right. mean, I, I think I think Abraham was—forgive me if I'm wrong a little bit on the ages, but I think he was around 76 when the initial promises were made. Mm-hmm. And then 10 years later, like we mentioned, 86 is when Ishmael was born, and Sarah was 10 years younger, so she was 76. Uh, and then not until Abram was 100 and Sarah was 90 did they actually have the promised son, Isaac. So it's easy to kind of gloss over that in our own minds and kind of wonder why, what was wrong with them? Why were they doubting? You know, God was appearing to them and telling them and showing the stars of the sky and all that means repeatedly making this promise about blessing and nation and land and see all those different promises they made in this Abrahamic covenant. But you got to think about the timeline from 76 to 86. That's 10 years, no Mm -hmm. son. And then from 86, when they had Ishmael, it wasn't like, okay, next year now, now we're going to make it. No, another 13 or 14 years of waiting. So before we get really tough on them, we need to realize that these are long stretches of time and, and God wasn't appearing to them every day. These were rare appearances that God was appearing to Abraham. So in, in a way, you can sympathize with them thinking, man, they were really having their faith tested. 
And, and this is actually, I think, the point for us today is that God makes promises to us in his word. Sometimes the time, as I, as I mentioned, it isn't what our time wants to be. Uh, but he keeps his promises. He keeps his covenants with us, despite all of our doubt, as they had, and despite all of the what we call delay. And he doesn't lo- overlook the fact that we sin in the process or we doubt and so forth, but he uses those things to actually change us and sanctify us and make us into the person that he wants us to be, all the while his plan is moving forward and it will be accomplished in the end. David, it's really important to put their ages and, and those time lapses in context because you're so right. I mean, they they had to keep trusting, didn't they? Very much. I mean, yeah. these were long periods of time. Oh, yeah. And again, they were way, way past childbearing age. This was going to be, and I think God does this to to bring glory to himself. Like, oh, now that I'm 100, there's just no way we could have children at this age. I mean, I'm 40 years past. Well, God does that. He does these impossible things to know that it's only the Lord who could do this, and he must get all the glory. Mm-hmm. David Wheaton is my guest. We're going to take a little break. Uh, we'll be right back with more. It is 16, 17 minutes after the hour. Thanks for joining me. That walk-up music belongs to David Wheaton. He's my guest we're talking about Book of Genesis. We've been going through this now for four or five months and loving it. We're in chapter 17 and 18 today. We were just talking about how to trust uh, God when things aren't happening the way we envisioned. Uh, but I'm going to move on now, David, unless you've got some other thoughts on that. No, I don't. I think that uh, good. that was yeah, you, good conversation. Yeah, yeah. No, I thought it was great, too. Uh, maybe I'm just reluctant to move on to this next topic, which is the introduction of <laughs> circumcision. And, uh, <laughs> Good segue. <laughs> so, yeah, I'll, uh, I'll let you talk. I'll hang and listen. I'll hang up and listen. Okay. You go ahead. I, I figured you'd do that. <laughs> so in, in Genesis 17, um, there's going to be this Abrahamic covenant. There's going to be a, a sign of this covenant, and it's going to be the sign of circumcision. And, and this has been something that was so prominent in, in the New Testament. And, and of course, I'll just read the passage. It's, it's interesting. It says, this is my covenant, God says, which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. And you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin and it shall be the sign of the covenant between me and you. And every male among you who is eight days old shall be circumcised throughout your generations. A servant who is born in the house or who who is bought with money from any foreigner, who is not of your descendants. So this is saying all males, if you're born, you get circumcised at eight days. But if not, if you're a man, I mean, this was said to Abraham, you're going to be circumcised at whatever, how old he was at this point now. So, you know, every every male out there is thinking, whoa, <laughs> this sounds like a tremendously painful situation, and why do I have to do this? Well, God was establishing this as a sign of the covenant, as a, as a symbol um, that the sin nature of man, the sin nature that we all have, is passed through the seed of a man. And so the only one that it wasn't passed through to that's ever lived is Jesus Christ, because again, he didn't have a human father. Everyone else who had a human father, which is all of us, have had this sin passed down to us. We're sinners by nature uh, and by choice. The nature comes from the fact that we have a human father. Now, there's nothing there's nothing like literally in in a man's 
semen, if you will, if you can use that expression on the air, that actually passes sin to the person. But this is the way this the symbolism is, that it comes from your father. And so the cutting away of the foreskin at this, this time symbolized that sin is universal. Every child is going to be born a sinner. And there's a need to be spiritually cleansed. And this is going to be a symbol of that. God is saying this, I am perfectly holy. You are a sinner by nature, by birth, and you need to have your sins dealt with or taken away. And circumcision didn't take away the sins, but just it was a reminder to them as sacrificing in the tabernacle at that time, yearly in the annual sacrifices, that we are in fact sinners and we need to be made right with this holy God. So this covenant of circumcision was introduced right here in Genesis 17, and it was a big one that lasted all throughout the Old Testament into the New Testament, even mentioned at least. Yeah. As a grown man, David, that'd be one of those uh, appointments you'd put off. That's exactly right. And it's actually brought up later in the sons of Jacob. Remember when he has, they they hadn't been uh, circumcised yeah. and they had disobeyed God. And then they had, they caused, oh no, they had been circumcised, but they had met some people who were living in the land and said, we'll be your friends. We'll do trade with you and business with you if you're circumcised. Right. And they were doing this deceitfully because they knew when they'd be circumcised, they wouldn't be able to be, they would need be basically incapacitated for a few days. And when they were incapacitated, they went and killed them all. It was one of the very, very low points in the history of the Jewish people. But mm-hmm. again, this was the same symbol or covenant they were doing at that time. Yeah. So I know our, our human nature, we often return to our, our, our own way of doing things. So I would love to talk about, in context of uh, Genesis 17 and 18, why, why it is our nature to return to human reasoning. <laughs> It's back to what we just talked about, circumcision. It's our it's our natural tendency to want to go our own way, to sin. You know, sin, we sometimes take that little word and don't think it means very much, but it's the most significant word in our entire uh, dictionary. Uh, because sin is that we're made in the image of God, but what makes us most different from God is that we are sinners and He is not. His holiness versus our sinfulness is what creates this chasm this big gulf that needs to be crossed, and, and God provided the way that that could be crossed, bridged through His Son, Jesus Christ. And so our human reasoning is this natural tendency we have to think in a way that's contrary to the way God thinks, and say things and do things contrary to what God wants. And so we see in Genesis here, in Genesis 17, that God keeps on repeating His, com- his uh, covenant, to Abraham and then to Sarah, and they actually literally keep laughing about it. Like, this is just a joke. This is not going to—according to my human reasoning, this just can't happen. Mm-hmm. And they start making up different ways for it to happen the way they want it to, to do, and it always ends in great consequence. As a matter of fact, when Abraham and Sarah finally have a, the son named Isaac, Isaac actually literally means he laughs, because Abraham had laughed, Sarah had laughed later on when they were repeatedly told that they're going to have a son, and through their son, this covenant is going to happen. So our human reasoning is really, in, in our to bring it to today, is what we need to be most careful about in our own lives. Uh, we can see circumstances going on in our society right now, at any times in our own personal lives, and we need to always think biblically, because human reasoning, we can kind of talk ourselves into and develop ideologies and rationalizations for almost anything to try to accommodate the way our human reasoning wants us to be. But that's why we have the anchor, the foundation 
of the Word of God, which is the true inspired Word of God that should be the foundation for how we think and live. So we need to think according to human, I mean, through biblical reasoning, mm -hmm. not human reasoning. Now, human reasoning isn't all bad as long as it jibes or corresponds with, is coincides with biblical reasoning. God did give us the ability to reason, but our reasoning needs to be put in sub subjection to what God has revealed in his word. Yeah, that's so uh, so solid, David. And the the human reasoning, and we're open to uh, being blindsided, or we've got blind spots, and we also uh, can be deceived. So if we if we don't think biblically, we're laying ourselves open to that stuff. Very much. Yeah. Very true. All right, let's talk about the angels that visited uh, Abraham in Genesis 18. What was going on there? Yeah, well, this is going to be probably a setup for, for the next time we talk, okay. because this is going to lead into the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah and this incredible, visible uh, judgment of God that takes place upon the cities of that, that plain by the Dead Sea. But basically, again, the promise hasn't happened of having a son, and God appears again uh, to, to Abraham and says, uh, at this time next year, you and your wife Sarah will have a son. And this, time, this is the, the point at which Sarah, who's listening in a tent behind um, Abraham laughs, and, and, and God, who's appearing—this is a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ. It's called a Christophany, and he appears with two angels. And Abraham immediately recognized that these three men who, who came were not earthly men. These are angelic men, one of them being Christ, the other two being angels. And again, this is setting up the impossible. Uh, Abraham's now going to be 100 years old soon. Sarah's 90 years old. And then there's this passage here I think is a great way to conclude today— is that when Sarah laughs, um, the Lord says to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh, saying, shall I indeed bear a child when I am so old? And it concludes with this, is anything too difficult for the Lord? It's just, it's an amazing, powerful passage that we should never think in our lives that anything is too difficult for the Lord. We're in a very difficult situation in our country right now. Uh, we have maybe a difficult, let's say a difficult marriage, difficult child situation, Maybe things are different. There's nothing that's too difficult for the Lord that he can't work through to do his work in us that brings him glory and does good in our lives. And I think this, this passage makes that point so strong, is that nothing is too difficult for the Lord. We need to look to him and trust and rest in what he can do, even in the midst of our circumstances, which seem impossible. And so right after this interaction, uh, this pre-incarnate uh, appearance of Christ and these two angels get up, and they start to look towards Sodom and Gomorrah. And of course, Sodom is where Abraham's nephew lives. And then it goes into, we'll talk about next time, they start talking about God's judgment that's coming to, uh, to these, these cities and how Abraham's trying to intercede for these cities to save his nephew Lot. Mm -hmm. David, this is so encouraging. This is uh, so timely. Thank you so much for sharing this with uh, the listeners. It's wonderful. Well, I've loved it as well, Bill. Thank you so much. Yeah, we will pick up where we left off. David Wheaton has been my guest. Head over to the ChristianWorldview.org and catch his uh, show coming up Saturday morning with Daryl B. Harris. We'll take a little break, and we will be back. Uh, Paul Borthwick is going to be my guest.
glad to be able to welcome to the show Paul Borthwick. He has uh, written a book called Mission 316. Uh, John 316, I have to say, is um, a powerful summary of probably the entire gospel in, uh, what, less than 30 words. And if uh, if we had one verse that everybody kind of knew, they would probably say it would be John 3.16. And Paul's going to talk to us today about it. He's written an entire book on John 3.16. For God so loved the world, he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Paul, welcome to the show. Thanks, Bill. Good to be with you. Well, I absolutely love this uh, verse, and I, I can't wait to hear more about your book. Um, so... Let's start with uh, your personal love for John 3.16. Well, uh, I was raised in a Christian family, so like many Christian family kids, whether through Sunday school or vacation Bible school, John 3.16 was arguably the first, uh, the first verse I ever memorized, and you know, one that over the course of my lifetime has ranged from anything from somebody's license plate to a, a signpost that someone holds up in the end zone, you know, uh, and it's really, as you said, the, the summary of the whole Christian gospel in one uh, compact, um, you know, compacted uh, phrase. As a matter of fact, the book starts off, and I talk about John three sixteen being Jesus' elevator speech. Uh, in 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 the world of sales, you know, when you're making a pitch to somebody. You're supposed to do have something that you can say in like 90 seconds. Meaning, if you're on the elevator, you can get them get them interested in what you want to sell them or say uh, in 90 seconds. And so, this is really everything you need to know really about the gospel comes in this verse. And that's kind of what I tried to unpack and I, as I wrote the book. Um, you asked me what it means. You know, I realized several years ago that I could quote John 3.16 in the same way as I could quote like the Lord's Prayer, but without thinking through each individual phrase or pair of words or a couple of words here or there, because it became so familiar, it became like insignificant. You know what I mean? We were, I wasn't really thinking it through. Right. And that, that the product of trying to do that process is what this book is about. Awesome. So we're going to do, do a deep dive uh, word by word on this verse. And I always think about this verse and you think, you, you picture Jesus standing on this big mountaintop with throngs of people as he as he says these words. But really, he just said it to one person, Nicodemus, right? Yeah, he's saying it to Nicodemus. And Nicodemus, who some would argue became a secret believer in Jesus later on. But Nicodemus is, you know, coming with his questions. He's coming at night. And Jesus, in the midst of a dialogue, you know, where he'll talk about being born again. He talks about the mysterious work of the Holy Spirit. Uh, but then he comes to this capstone verse, you know, Nicodemus, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, and like you said, it, it's just, uh, you know, something that a dialogue that Jesus must have related to John the Apostle, or maybe we don't know, John the Apostle might have been sitting there in the room, but something that was so significant that it stuck as, you know, a major chapter in the Gospel of John. Mm-hmm. Paul, let's start uh, just breaking this down word by word, because this is uh, something I know all my listeners will love. Yeah, well, that's the way the chapters are broken down, and we have, you know, the first, the second chapter is on for God, the third one is so loved, fourth is the world, fifth is that he gave, sixth is his one and only son, seven that whosoever believes 
eight is shall not perish, but nine is have eternal life. And what, what I try to do is try to look at each one of those phrases in light of what they reflect in the overall of Scripture. So for God example, the, the verse begins, for God so loved the world. Well, it's God who's the great pursuer, God's the great initiator. God comes looking for lost people in Genesis chapter 3. Jesus goes looking to seek and to save that which was lost in Luke chapter 19. And it's an amazing thought that the God of the universe who created the ends of the earth comes looking for us. And, you know, if we're followers of Jesus, it's because God, through someone else probably, came looking for us. And uh, if you study the world religions, most of the time in world religions, you're trying to achieve sort of a presence with God. Mm-hmm. God, God in Christianity, he comes looking for us, you know, to Adam and Eve, where are you? And I would argue that as followers of Jesus, what our call is in the world is to go into the world in God's name and say to the world that we live in, where are you? You know, my heavenly father wants a relationship with you. He's inviting you back. Where are you? And so we join God in pursuing people outside of the gospel. And it's just, it's a staggering thought that the God who knows, you know, 7.5 billion people by name would come looking for each one of us. Mm. And, uh, and that's, that's really the essence of, you know, God's love, which is the second major section. And the love is God's underlying motive. I was raised in fairly strict Christian tradition, and sometimes you get the impression that condemnation was God's motive. You know what I mean? That God mm-hmm. really wanted to show people how, how bad they were. But the primary motive of God is love, that he chose to set his love upon us. You know, even the Israelites in the book of, I think it's Deuteronomy, he says, I, I, I didn't pick you because you're the most mighty. I picked you because I loved you. And, uh, and you know, God so loved us. And our motive needs to be there for love. And, you know, I don't think there's a chapter that speaks more to the current events in our country and in the world than this one. Because, uh, you know, there's so much racial tension and injustice. There's so much uh, animosity politically between this side and that side. And, and we need to remember that the primary driving force of the Christian is God's love. And I don't know the situation where all of our listeners are, but in, in the world I live in, it sometimes it looks like Christians fighting Christians over Democrat, Republican. And it almost sounds like they're their political party or the, or the TV station they watch is more important to them than the gospel of love. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, the Bible says the world will know we are Christians by our love for each other. And uh, so love is a very essential thing. And then the target of God's love is the world. And uh, it's not just the Jewish people. It's not just the 12 tribes. When Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, I can imagine Nicodemus, another rabbi, another teacher in Jewish tradition, he, he would have understood that Jesus was going to say, Nicodemus, God so loved the Jews, or God so loved the 12 tribes of Israel. But he said, Nicodemus, God so loved the world. And it would have been a reminder to Nicodemus that the people of Israel were chosen to be a light to the nations. You know, in Isaiah chapter 49, uh, Isaiah writes, speaking in, in God's voice, if you will. He says, God says, 
it's too small for me to be concerned only for the people of Israel. My, I've made you a light of revelation to the nations that all the end may fear him. They may fear me. In other words, God's vision is not just for our country. If all of our vision is just for our country, the vision is too small. God's love, he wants it to be spread across cultures across the world. It's the essence of why we do mission work. You know, it's the essence of why we do a lot of compassionate care work, because we want to express God's love across cultures across the world. When we understand God's love for the world, it changes the way we look at people. It changes the way we look at immigrants. It changes the way we look at people from Islam or from Buddhism or from Hinduism or from secularism. You know, we start to see people through what I call the Jesus glasses. And and I like to envision the fact that if we put on the Jesus glasses, then the first thing we see is a person created in the image of God, loved by God, invited by God to a, to a relationship. It changes the way we relate to them. Can I, can I tell a quick story? Oh, please. Boston? Yeah, Paul. Yeah. It, some of us might remember in 2013, Boston was deeply shaken by the Boston Marathon bombing experience. And, you know, the city went on shutdown for a couple of days. It was quite a, quite a nerve wracking, terrifying thing. And of course, Within the weeks after that, the, uh, the, the critiques, the, the insults, the, the derogatory language used against Muslim was pretty profound in our news media, especially in, in people's interviews and such. And about two weeks after the marathon bombing, uh, I was traveling. I was at the Logan International Airport, and I was just waiting around to board a plane. And there was a young lady standing by a kiosk, one of those little wagons where they sell gum and you know, sweets and, and newspapers and whatnot. And she was all by herself, and she was wearing a hijab, which is the head covering of Islam, the head covering of a Muslim woman. And uh, I felt like the Lord spoke to me and said, go speak to her. And I said, well, okay. So I went over, and with a little bit of Arabic that I've learned from travels and whatnot, I just said to her, salam alaikum. And uh, it means in Arabic something along the lines of peace be upon you. It's a very traditional Arabic and Muslim greeting. And I said, Salam Alaikum. And she burst into tears. She burst into tears. And I said, Oh, no. Because, you know, whenever you try a foreign language, you know, you might say something stupid. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. you know, and I thought, you know, I thought to myself, Oh, no, what did I say? You know, like, Hey, what's up, babe? Or something like that, you know. <laughs> and I said, did, did I say something wrong? She goes, Oh, no. You said it perfectly. Alaikum Salam, which is her response. She goes, I said, Why are you crying? She goes, I've been standing here. For the last two weeks, you're the first human being that spoke to me. Wow. You know, and if we dehumanize people that are different from ourselves, how how are they going to hear the gospel? How are they going to see God's love through us? And so it's changing. It's like I said, it's putting on those Jesus glasses and changing the way we look across the aisle in politics, if you will. Mm-hmm. You know, that person who might be a Republican or a Democrat or watch Fox versus CNN or whatever, that, that might be a person that's my brother in Christ or my sister in Christ. You know, but it's changing the way we look at people. And uh, and that's really one of the things that I'm trying to encourage people to do, which is why I'm so happy that it came out of a time like this, because listening and loving people go hand in hand. And uh, that's really one of the issues in our world today is will we listen to what the other person has to say? And uh, the book goes on with uh, That He Gave, 
So we remind the fact that loving the world is sacrificial, starting with God's gift of Jesus and following on in our lives. If you know anything about the history of mission work and the history of, history of mission work and the current events of mission work, you realize crossing the culture is often very, very sacrificial, even to the point of losing someone's life. And Jesus is the center point, his one and only son. A lot of people like to quote, you know, God so loved the world, but they forget the fact that Jesus is the center of that love. And the next phrase, that whoever believes in him, means that God is inviting us to a relationship. He's not forcing upon us. He's not saying, I love you so much, I'm going to rescue you regardless of how you relate to me. He's saying, I love you so much, I'm inviting you into a relationship. And through the death of Jesus, I've paved the way for you to come into that relationship. And then chapter 8 says, it shall not perish. It's not a very popular subject to talk about today, but the Bible holds forth that there is a reward for belief, eternal life, with the consequence of disbelief, mm-hmm. condemnation. And, uh, and so many times people just want, like I said, they want to focus on God's love. But God's love is a polite love. You know, it's a love that basically says, I'm inviting you into a relationship to believe, yeah. you know, that whoever believes in you. Paul, you're on a roll, but you're on a roll, but I do need, I do need to take a break. So what, okay. I, what I'm going to ask you to do is stay on that roll. So when we come back, we can pick up right where we left off. Paul Borthwick is my guest. His book is called Mission 316. We'll take a little break and we'll be right back. Today. He's written a book called Mission 316, God's One Verse Invitation to Love the World. And I love what we were talking about before the break, Paul. I just, uh, before we get to uh, shall not perish, I want to back up just a little bit uh, for the words so loved, when uh, for God so loved. I think there are a lot of people that assume the love that this verse is talking about is the love that will make me happy on this earth. And if he really loved me, uh, my life would be better. I'd have a better job and my finances would be in better shape and my relationships would be better. A little bit of, you know, sort of projecting onto God what we would love someone else to do for us, you know, here on this earth. And the, the love of God is one of, you know, taking us through the storm, not escaping the storm. The love of God is present. You know, I love the fact that in the Bible, the most common commandment, is don't be afraid. Mm-hmm. And the most and the most common next phrase is, I am with you. You know? So, you know, God's love doesn't mean that we'll never get COVID or coronavirus. Mm-hmm. But it means that every step of the way he's loving us through. What what's most precious to me is the fact I mentioned it earlier that God knows my name. You know, in Isaiah it says, it says God calls the stars by name. And to be known by God is that sense of security that through all the changes of condition, because we live in a broken world because of the choices human beings have made over the ages that we make ourselves. And that love is to carry us through, to pull us out, to rescue us. And love and mercy and justice all go intertwined. But it's not necessarily the easy pathway to uh, you know a blissful American dream life. Mm-hmm. And when you think about... Uh 
God will always be with us, certainly that would be what Satan will counterfeit. And Satan will say to you, you're going to end up alone. Uh, No one's going to love you and you're going to be a failure. And so these fear not and all of these other promises God makes, I know Satan's going to come in and try to exploit and counterfeit. Yeah. And I I remember an experience I had with one of my travels where it turned out it was just a bad mistake. But for a moment in time, a lot of people, including myself, thought I had been kidnapped, right? And I was getting texts from all my students in India, you know, Uncle Paul, we're praying for you. You know, you've been kidnapped. Whatever you do, don't drink the tea. They're going to poison you. I mean, and so my my Christian friends weren't exactly calming me down. Right. But I I stopped and just breathed a prayer. And the sense that I got, you know, it wasn't really an audible voice, but the sense that I got was the Lord was saying, I know where you are. I'm with you. I love it. You know, and, uh, and, and in, in the storm, you know, when Jesus comes with somebody sleeping, and one of the phrases, I think it's in Luke's, he says, where is your faith? In other words, you've been putting your faith in the stock market. You've been putting your faith in your good health. You've been putting your faith in the normal way we've been living. Now that's all been shaken. Now you've got to find out where is your faith. Mm-hmm. You know, and in their case, they were, their faith was in their boat. Their faith was in their navigational skills. Their faith was in their ability to uh, to plan a good fishing trip. But Jesus says, no, where is your faith? And I believe a lot of times God lets us go through things to center our faith on the center point, which is Jesus. Yeah. Take us through. Yeah. And we're supposed and to... And that love. Go yeah. ahead, go ahead. Well, we're supposed to have delight in these trials. We're supposed to say God is working out something spectacular in our life as much as we're, we might be whining and complaining. Yeah, and, and I always remind myself that all the Bible stories are told retrospectively. In other words, for you to give the testimony that God delivered me, you have to go through experiences from which you need to be delivered. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, it, it, you know, you know, Melvin says God gave me just an easy ride. He basically said God took me through that cancer. God took me through that difficulty, that loss, that you know, suffering, and uh, and that's really the God's invitation to that kind of a relationship, a relationship of constant uh, presence. Yeah, and and you know, we were talking about believing. The biblical concept is not just about giving an intellectual assent, but basically when it says whoever believes in him, it's a choice to follow. It's a choice to become a disciple. It's not just a choice to pray a prayer one time at youth camp. Right. It's a choice to make a decision to live with Jesus. And that's the, that's the, the thing that takes us away from the world of condemnation into the world of eternal life. Mm-hmm. Which, is, which the Bible describes not as something that happens when you die. The Bible describes it as something that happens when you start that relationship. Jesus says in John 17, verse 3, This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you sent. And Paul, the testing makes our faith what God wants it to be. It's without testing, I don't know where we're going to end up, but I know he... he will allow trials in our lives for a very specific purpose. I remember uh, years and years ago, I got certified in CPR. And I can kind of walk around with a little bit of swagger going, yeah, I'm certified in CPR. I've never used it. <laughs> and I hope I never yeah. have to. But, you know, it's like I'm not going to know if, if I still remember the skill set and if I still know how to do it when the time actually comes. Exactly. And, you you know, but, but you're prepared. Yeah. You know, yeah. That, that's a big part of it, Yeah. 
So anyhow, the argument in the book is, are we living in John 3.16 lifestyle? You know, with the amount of sacrifice in our own lives for the sake of others, for love, for the people, regardless of whether they're different from us, uh, for a view towards the world. I mean, it's an, a magnificent verse which contemplated slowly uh, presents me and readers with a lifestyle of challenge and a lifestyle of privilege that we're loved by the Almighty God. All right, so let's uh, shall not perish. Whoever believes will not perish. That's right. a that's a big thing for people to wrap their their head around because a lot of the a lot of people fear death. They fear transitioning into the eternal life. Um, it seems like a bit the big uncertainty, and I read these words and I think I shall not perish. This is the happiest couple of words I've I could ever imagine reading. Right, and the, the word perishing here is not talking just about mortal death. You know, your heart stops beating, right. or you you with your CPR comes and rescues me. But uh, but the condemnation is what he's talking about, and it goes in John three seventeen goes on to that. You know, um, but. John 3.36 also echoes it, that the wrath of God abides in the person who rejects. And just before the break, I mentioned this, that God's love is a gracious love, a polite love. He's loving it. That's why we use the word in the book a lot about the invitation. God's inviting us into a relationship. But if we choose not to have that relationship, not to have that belief, not to have that commitment, then the reality is, that we become responsible in biblical language for our own sins and the penalties thereof, as opposed to letting Jesus be the one who's paid them for us. And so we are under, according to John 3.36, the wrath of God, or the British people would say the wrath of God. But, you know, basically that sin has to be condemned or judged, and we need a Savior. And that's the essence of the verse of who Jesus is in John 3.16. I love it. It's on, Jesus is on a, surf, a search and rescue mission coming after the ones he loves. It's a powerful message that um, most world religions say you have to do this in order to get close to God, and Christianity says this is what God did to try to get close to us. Yeah, absolutely. Well said. Well said. You should write a book. No, I'm not a writer. <laughs> <laughs> I'll let you guys like you write the books. Um, so let's let's just uh, talk about, you know, always being on mission. Uh, we always need to be prepared to give an answer. We always need to be ready to share our hope. And just like John 3.16, you say, might have been Jesus's elevator uh, speech. Uh, what about us and our willingness to give the elevator speech? Yeah, and I, I, it's a great question. And I think, you know, we talk in the book about being 24-7 on mission. You know, which basically means being aware of the fact that I'm not just living my own selfish life. I'm living in the world as a witness to the love of God through Jesus Christ in me. And the elevator speech, you know, John 3.16 could be manifested by actually quoting John 3.16 and talking it through with people. But it might be illustrated by an act of kindness. It might be illustrated by greeting a person who is a Muslim person working at the airport. Uh Uh-huh. You know, it might be illustrated. You see, I love to think of it this way. Like with that lady that I greeted at the airport, you know, um, her name was Aisha. I knew enough about Islam that that's the name of Muhammad's favorite wife. And so we talked a little bit about that. But, you know, sometimes some of our TV personalities or radio personalities would tell you that story and then how Aisha became a follower of Jesus and today she's a missionary in Iraq. Right. You know, I have no idea what happened to Aisha. 
All I know is this. I was a witness in the case that God is building in her life. I love the fact that God calls us witnesses. He doesn't call us all evangelists. He calls us witnesses. And when we think of it, when I go to my next-door neighbor yesterday who was having chest pains, just to be there as a friend, it didn't necessarily mean a bunch of religious talk. It just meant I was being a witness in the case that God's building in that guy's life, in his case, to bring him back to Christ. It's a long story. Mm-hmm. But the, the, the reality is, if I think of myself that way, on the one hand, it lifts me off the hook that I don't need to deliver the whole package every time I talk to a person. On right. the other hand, it makes me always aware of the fact that the way I speak to them, the way I relate to them, the way that I you know, emotionally touch them or whatever— is really a reflection of the gospel itself. Yeah. And uh, and that's really the, the big challenge that we all face, to yeah. be living a John 3.16 lifestyle. Paul, I bet uh, visiting your friend uh, with chest pains, I bet you wish you had my CPR training. <laughs> well, all I wish is that I had my cell phone, so I could call 911 <laughs> if I needed to. But yeah. uh, we're, we're, thankfully, we, we live in a place where there's a fire station right around the corner. Yeah. And I, but uh, no, I, I hear you, though, yeah. because... You know, it's a reminder that every one of us is one heartbeat away, you know. And I love uh, I love your book, uh, Mission 316. Paul Borthwick has been my guest. And I love the, the reminder, I will walk away and remember this forever, about uh, just being reminded to be a witness. Mm. Um, that's, so, that's so important. I just appreciate that very much, Paul. Well, thanks. Thanks for the interest in the book, Bill. And uh, may God bless you to live out John 316. Indeed. Paul Borthwick, again, has been my guest, and his book is called Mission... 316. We'll take a little break and we'll be right back with lots more. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.